want to talk to you this morning about the phrase, in Jesus' name. Last week, we looked at a short-term mission excursion that Jesus sent out. And today, we look at the return of those missionaries. He sent them out for a short-term mission trip. And we talked about the fact that the short-term missions can really light a fire in a person's spiritual life. It can take a spiritual life that's in the doldrums and turn it around. It can do something wonderful and magnificent and inexplicable when a person takes the gospel out into the mission field, be it locally, nationally, or internationally, and they see God doing great things in faraway places, and they see God do great things through them and and in them. It can be monumentally significant. We've got a trip going to St. Louis. It's probably going to be filled up. We've got a trip going to Oneida. It's going to be filled up. We've got a, uh, a team that uh, is taking a vision trip to Turkey. We've got the, that, that, that trip planned. We've got some other trips available. But once you go out and you come back, you see the world differently. It's a bigger world. It's a world with bigger needs, and we see that we have a big role to play in this world. And so when they return, they they return with the best of news. They've had a very successful short-term mission trip. There are four conversations we're going to listen in on as we work through these few verses this morning. First, the missionaries speaking to Jesus. Second, Jesus speaking to the missionaries. Third, Jesus speaking to God the Father. Fourth, Jesus privately and confidentially speaking to the disciples. We're going to get to listen in on these four conversations, and there's nothing, nothing better than eavesdropping in on a, on a conversation and hearing what's going on. Uh, there's a little something in all of us that kind of likes that, and we see that this morning. I want you to notice first, as the mission team speaks to, to Jesus, they give a joyful report of what God had has done through them. Look at verse 17 again that Miranda read just a moment ago. Now the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So Jesus had been training these people. He had been teaching these people. He'd been preparing these, this group of people. So he sends them out to do what he's been doing. They've seen him teach. They've seen him heal. They've seen him cast out demons. And they go out preaching and teaching and healing the sick and and casting out demons. And and it was exhilarating to see how God was using them in such such a wonderful and magnificent way. But notice the way that they stated it. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, there's nothing unusually significant about the name Jesus by itself. Uh, I met a brother the other day named Jesus. Jesus was a very common first century name. It's not like, that, like the angel name gave Jesus a name that nobody else had. But it is who this name of Jesus represents. It represents the second person of the deity. It represents our incarnate Lord. And so they extol the fact that the demons are subject to them in Jesus of Nazareth's name. 
And I love that, that phrase, in Jesus' name, just kind of to roll around in my mind this week. And I tracked down some cross-references and thought about how important the name of Jesus is, and particularly that phrase, in Jesus' name. And so out of the many verses that I looked at, I picked out four that I want to, to bring to your attention this morning. One thought is this, we are instructed to pray in Jesus' name. The most magnificent promise related to prayer is associated with the name of Jesus. This is what Jesus said, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, so that the Father can be glorified in the Son. A second thing that I want you to notice about the name of Jesus is that we are to live all of life in Jesus' name. It's not just a name that we use when we pray. Our entire life is to be saturated in Jesus' name. This is what Paul wrote in Colossians. He says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus. That gives everything significance. That changes everything. That means that there's not the sacred world and the secular world, the church world and the work world, the church world and the home world. Everything that we do can bring glory to God. You might be, you might be trapped at a mid-level job for what is going to be the remainder of your career. And you wonder, there's no significance, there's no meaning, there, there, there's nothing really hardly to get up for. It's like I, I'm, it's drudgery to get ready and go to work. That job can be transformed into something more significant than you could have ever imagined if you do your job in Jesus' name. A light in a dark world, giving glory to Him by the way that you work. All of a sudden, all of that is infused with the glory of God. Well, I wish I could be a preacher or a worship leader or maybe even a deacon. No, if God hasn't called you to those, He hasn't called you to those. But that doesn't mean that you have any less an opportunity to bring glory to God than a missionary, than a deacon, or than a pastor. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Did you know there is power in Jesus' name? We saw that in the missionary's report a moment ago, but listen to Acts chapter 3 and verse 6. Peter said, I do not have silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene walk. And a crippled man got up and walked. There is power in the name of Jesus. There's salvation in the name of Jesus. In fact, there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. In Acts chapter 4, Peter was arrested for healing the man in Acts chapter 3 that we just read about a moment ago. So he's brought before a religious tribunal. They want to find out why he's doing what he's doing and how he's accomplishing 
the miraculous deeds that he's accomplishing. So they placed him in the center of the room, and they began to question him. Listen to the question they ask him. By what power or in what name have you done this? A little bit later, Peter says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone. Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. There is salvation in the name of Jesus. Nobody gets saved without calling on the name of Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. In fact, Paul puts it this way, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No wonder the hymn writer put it this way, all hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. We pray in Jesus' name. We live in Jesus' name. There is power in Jesus' name. There is salvation in no other name. And one day every knee will bow before King Jesus and confess the truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. No sweeter name than the name of Jesus. So they have an exhilarating report that they give to Jesus. Well, Jesus speaks to the missionaries, and he, he wants to give them a, a divine refocus. It's easy for success to go to the head. It's easy for us to mistake success for faithfulness. They're rejoicing in the fact that the demons are subject to them, and well, they should. But Jesus goes on to say in verses 18 and 19, Jesus said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Bible students debate and discuss, well, when, when did Jesus see this? Was it Satan's primordial fall? That is, before the creation of of heaven and earth, before Adam and Eve were created. Is that what he's talking about? I don't think so. Some have suggested that he, he is foreshadowing Satan being cast from heaven when he, when he dies on the cross, when Jesus dies on the cross. That's described in, in Revelation chapter 12. At the death of Jesus, Satan is cast out of heaven. But I don't think that's the point that he's making. That it's in the context 
where he's speaking to this missionary team, and they are extolling the fact that they have been casting out demons in Jesus' name, that is, by his power, by his authority, for his glory. He says, every, every, every demon you cast out was a blow against Satan's kingdom. Every person putting their faith in Christ was a, an attack on a satanic fortress. Little by little, bit by bit, Satan's kingdom is falling. With every person that is saved, they are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So Jesus knows what's transpiring as these teams are out among the villages where he is going to visit. And people are being drawn to the name of Jesus. And with each person that puts their faith in the name of Jesus, the kingdom of Satan is experiencing the removal of a brick here, a boulder there. It's under assault by these missionary forces. So he says, I I see the kingdom of Satan falling like lightning. And behold, I have given you authority to walk on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. So he's telling them and reminding them, this authority is my authority. It's delegated to you. It's not yours, it's mine, but I'm, I'm delegating it to you. And nothing will injure you. Well, obviously, he doesn't mean physically, because Peter would be martyred. Paul will be, will, will be martyred. Missionaries are beaten and tortured, arrested. He doesn't mean physically, but he means spiritually. No matter what another person does to us, they can't take our salvation from us. That's more important than anything about us. No one and nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 10. And then notice the word, nevertheless. There's a turn all of a sudden. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. What? That you've been casting out demons. That I've given you authority over uh, serpents and scorpions. Do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That is, don't rejoice ultimately and primarily in ministerial success because that can become intoxicating. Rejoice in the fact that your names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice in the fact that nothing anyone would ever, could ever do to you and nothing you could ever do to yourself will allow your name to be erased from the Lamb's book of life. He's he's warning every pastor, Sunday attendance should not govern Monday morning's disposition. Otherwise, your life is just like this. It's a roller coaster. That's a pathetic way to be a pastor. It's a pathetic way to live. Numbers are not unimportant because they represent people. Numbers are not of ultimate importance. That's why church health matters more than church numbers. Church health matters more than church growth. But what's true of the minister can be equally true in the comfortable chairs. That is, it's very easy for us to allow our lives to be like a roller coaster. Beware of of constructing your joy in life on temporary successes. 
Otherwise, your life will be like a roller coaster. Get the job, don't get the job. Get the promotion, don't get the promotion. Things go well, things, it's like up and down. And he would say to us, don't rejoice in all of the good things in life. We can give great for, we'd be grateful to God for them. But what do you do when life doesn't give you what you want? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So for me, the straight path is deteriorated vision. So what am I going to do with the rest of my life on that straight path? Very, very seldom does it get me under the weather. Occasionally it get me under the weather. Very seldom. Because I realize that my life is more than my vision. That's my straight path. That's what distinguishes a mature Christian from an immature Christian. The more mature we become, our life does not necessarily become any easier. In fact, the older we get, the harder our lives become. Because you add in all kinds of, all kinds of variables. And so I'm not saying that you whistle on your way to the unemployment line or you give high fives at the funeral, funeral parlor. What I'm saying is this, Jesus' advice to them is good advice to us. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We might say, well, well pastor, if, if I were to rejoice and I didn't feel like it, then that would be, that would be hypocritical. No, it would be mature. What would you say to a 26-year-old single man who wants to have a sexual relationship with a woman and he's got this driving through him? You would say marriage or sexual relations are confined to the marriage relationship. So is he hypocritical to live in sexual purity and faithfulness to God, although at times he has things yearnings in his, in his life? No, that's maturity. Maturity is doing the right thing regardless of how I feel. So, so we, our life is covered up with a dark cloud because of a, a legitimate health concern, a child or a, a loved one. Well, that, that, that doesn't mean we're kicking up our heels. In fact, why would we kip, kick up our heels? But it means that no matter how hard life is, our salvation is secure, and we can praise God for what God has done in us and for us. And then what you find often happens is that there's just a little break in the clouds, just a little break, and the, the sunshine of God's grace comes through. And just like on a cold winter day that is overcast, like every day in Louisville from November to April, Every once in a while, the clouds part, the sun breaks through, and you remember, June is coming. June is coming. Peter wrote something like this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. In what? Well, he tells us, in a living hope, a heavenly inheritance, and a protected salvation. In this you rejoice, even though now for a little while, 
If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Trials, yes. Rejoicing, yes. In the trial, not necessarily. In the fact that you have a a heavenly inheritance, a living hope, and a protected salvation, absolutely. Jesus wants to reorient their focus. Because if their focus today and the joy today is primarily on the success of the moment, what happens when the next moment has disappointment and heartache? And so Jesus doesn't want our joy grounded on our happiness, or I put it this way, when your joy is grounded on happiness, your circumstances determine your joy. And that's a very hard way to live. Well, I want you to notice that Jesus turns from speaking to them to speaking to God. And in verses 20 through 22 that Miranda read just a moment ago, Jesus is speaking to, uh, speaking to the Father. And he wants to notice in verse 21 in particular, in 21 and 22, it says at that very time, in that very moment, he, he, he pauses, he takes a breath. At that very moment, he turns his attention to heaven. And he does what he's just told the disciples to do. He's a perfect example of, of his own teaching. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have not hidden these things from the wise, or um, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for doing so was well pleasing in your sight. So he praises God that God has revealed these things to the humble, to the meek, to the lowly, not to not to the rabbinic upper echelon. Commoners, many of those people could not read nor write. Probably most of them that Jesus was talking to could not read nor write. And yet these truths, these special truths, these magnificent truths that that they can rejoice in the fact that their names are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life was made known to them and not in the Sanhedrin. Then he says in verse 22, as a Part of this, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the, who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one and anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal Him. Uh, I want to stop right here. I want to think about that for just a moment. And whomever the Son determines to reveal Him. Go back with me to Rebecca and for just a moment. A city of over 20 million people. She's getting ready to do graduate study in England. She sees a Westerner, I believe an American, living in a townhouse a few doors down. She wants to sharpen her English skills. She's got very good English. She wanted to sharpen her English skills. She told me she knocked on his door, will you be my English teacher? He's been born again by the Spirit of God. He is indwelt by God's Spirit. He loves Jesus and he loves people. He was not there as a missionary, but he was there as a businessman who 
He's going to look for opportunities, apparently, to share his faith. And she comes to saving faith. She gets connected to a church who the pastor is a former member of our church. Wonderful man. Sweet wife. She leads her husband to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're both professional people. God calls them not only to himself, but he calls them to Christian missions, ministry. And so they, they, leave, the, they leave their jobs, they leave their home, they leave their family, and they come to train for Christian service. God knows how to find his people, even if they're in a city of over 20 million people, and you don't know Christian people, so God just plants a Christian two doors down from you. He sees all things, he knows all things, he accomplishes all things for his holy will. So Jesus is, Jesus is spontaneously expressing praise and prayer to God. He's speaking to the Father. That God knows how to hide from the, from the haughty, the arrogant, the condescending. You may work with a person that is overly competitive. There's something diabolically demonic about people in a workplace who are working together and one is measuring his success by somebody else's failures or lack of success. You probably find that person extremely unpleasant because their goal is to do better than you do, which is always the pagan's goal. And so you become that two-door down Christian person. You become that person that's been shipped in because God might have a plan for that jerk, for that person. Never underestimate what God can do in you or through you. Would you stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer and then Caleb's going to come and we're going to sing together. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning. We thank you so much for the way that you accomplish your will, how you can bring people to saving faith when we wonder, how, how could you ever do it? Well, you just bring someone from one, one country across the world to another country and move them in two doors down. And Father, we rejoice not in ministerial success, but we rejoice most, first and foremost that our names are written in the, Lamb, the Lamb's book of life. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, if there are those here today who don't know Jesus, they would come to know Jesus that they would recognize that they're among a group of people who would never claim that they were better than anyone else. We just recognize we needed Jesus. So draw them to Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.